0: Hey, my friends, it's me, Bo, And I got another moment for you. Another Black History moment. You know, sometimes when I'm traveling through the darkness that holds our hidden history, I run across people and places that are so knowledge-worthy that I wonder what lives would have been had these stories been told. And that knowledge alone makes my activism my rent for living on this planet. And I have always, always heard what you do in the dark will come to the light. So that's my goal, to bring these people and places Out of the darkness, and into the light. So if you don't know, now you know. The young man sits alone in a hotel room. The last rays of sunlight leaking through the windows. Facing a single sheet of hotel stationery. He grips a fountain pen. It's the eve of the biggest game he'll ever play. He thinks that because it's his first real varsity game and that there will be many more to follow, a full three seasons worth. But it's bigger than that. We know now because it's also the game that will make him a legend. His thoughts are too big to hold inside so much is swirling through him as the day shifts from late afternoon to early evening the autumn night fast approaching that he has to release them so he writes in a burst of legible but hurried cursive to whom it may concern the young man is Jack Trice before Emmett Till Johnny Bright or in Medgar Evans Jack Trice became a gridiron martyr and was promptly forgotten. Until many years later, when someone remembered, the river of his life, which had ebbed to a trickle, gradually swelled over the course of 40 years until it overran its banks and flooded a college campus. This then is how that legend took shape. October fifth nineteen twenty three John Trice, whom everyone but his mother calls Jack, sits alone in his room at the Curtis Hotel shortly before supper time when he will join his teammates from Iowa State. The other twenty six men who had made the 215-mile journey from Ames, Iowa to Minneapolis for tomorrow's afternoon football game against the University of Minnesota. Jack may sense, but cannot know for certain, what hatred may take shape in the approaching shadows. He has conditioned himself to tread cautiously, even more so in new situations so that he may gauge the environment, read the clues, and play his part. Trice is an African-American, what the newspaper and many others then called colored, and that fact is central to his story. He stands six feet, 200 pounds, big for his day, bigger than most of his teammates, stronger than most of them, too. Yet the fact of his skin color emancipates him against lesser men who can deny him a room, a meal at a restaurant, a place on the field, who can strip him of his dignity just like that. Trice is the only black player on the Iowa State football team, the first black varsity athlete at Iowa State College, as Iowa State University was then known, one of only a few black football players in the country at that time, playing against white opponents. He will be the only black player on Northrop Field tomorrow. Some schools simply refuse to let African Americans in. Others refuse to let them play varsity sports. Minneapolis may be a northern city, but that does not mean racism did not reside at that latitude. Just three years before Trice arrived, a white mob in Duluth, 175 miles north of Minneapolis, lynched three black men who had come to town with a traveling circus, accused of raping a white woman. (laughs) Here we go again, my friends. The scene was familiar in southern states, but the first mob lynching in Minnesota, the great migration of southern rural African-Americans had not yet inflated Minneapolis' black population the way it had other northern industrial cities. But the Ku Klux Klan had nevertheless targeted Minnesota for expansion, swelling its ranks to 30,000 members statewide. The Klan had risen to such popularity and prominence on the University of Minnesota campus that it entered afloat in that fall's homecoming parade. Indeed, the very weekend that Trice and his Cyclone teammates came to town, 299 Klan members attended the first state convention across the river in St. Paul. The vitality of the Klu Klux Klan in the Twin Cities did not render every white citizen a bigot, of course, but it did reflect sympathy among a segment of the population. Trice may very well have heard some of the stories of its activities and could only wonder if these influences might infiltrate Saturday's game. If you believe in destiny... You would say that the arc of Trice's life had delivered him to this moment. He was born May twelfth, nineteen oh two, in Hiram, a small town in rural Ohio, about forty miles southeast of Cleveland, the only child of Anna and Green Trice. Both Anna's parents and Green's parents had been slaves. His father, who had fought American Indians as what the tribal people referred to as Buffalo Soldier, a member of the all-black 10th Cavalry Regiment of the U.S. Army, died when Jack was seven years old. His mother, who washed white people's laundry, sent Jack to Cleveland at age 14 to live with his uncle's family and attend East Technical High School. She wanted him to be among people of his kind to meet the problems that a Negro boy would have to face. Trice, already big in high school, played football on several very good teams at East Tech under a good coach, Sam William, who had starred at Ohio State. Trice anchored the line, laying out opposing ball carriers with his signature flying tackle and blocking for the Breen brothers, Johnny and Norton, East Tech's slippery running backs. The big lineman with the gentle demeanor, one of only two African-Americans on the team, was named All-State and left East Tech tagged in the high school yearbook, as undoubtedly the best tackle that ever played at the school. Success like that in high school football generally yields opportunities. Newt Rockney invited Johnny and Norton Bream to play for him at Notre Dame. Williman landed the head coaching job at Iowa State, but not so for black kids. Trice took a job on the road construction crew. Then Willimon came calling later that summer. He talked to the Beam brothers and two other Cleveland prep stars into playing for him at Iowa State. He also invited Trice. Just one problem. Jack had tumbled into love. Leaving for Iowa State campus and Ames meant leaving his girl, Cora Mae, behind. The solution? Marry her. In late July, the star-crossed lovers eloped temporarily, taking a train across the Michigan border, where they told the clerk Cora May was 19 years old. She was, in fact, 15, and that she came from Colorado. She returned with her secrets to her parents' home in Youngstown to finish high school, and Jack headed to Ames, satisfied, content. If it wasn't destiny that had delivered Trice to the Curtis Hotel on the eve of the first real college football game, then it was pure determination. Back then, schools did not offer athletic scholarships, and college had not been in the Trice family budget jack worked two custodial jobs one in a downtown building the other in state gym to pay for tuition books meals and lodging and to buy cora may a special necklace jack's mother helped out by mortgaging her house black students could not live on campus so he found an upstairs room in the masonic temple building downtown two miles from campus The East Tech curriculum had not satisfied all of Iowa State's prerequisites, and he had to make up the extra work, but still averaged 90% in his grades. Trice was determined and idealistic. Enrolled in the animal husbandry program, he hoped to work with black farmers in the South teaching them modern methods to cultivate their crops and support their families he planned to put his education at their service in the spirit of iowa state's famous black alumni the scientist and inventor george washington carver intercollegiate rules kept first-year students from playing varsity so trice worked out with the freshman team which played no games other than scrimmages against the varsity. Trice may have been big and strong, but the high school standout still had a lot to learn. The line coach, George Hauser, who had been an All-American and now moonlighted for the Chicago Bears on Sundays, recognized the potential in Trice and schooled him in one-on-one workouts daily after practice. Soon the younger... Smaller people had been the mentor's equal, and Hauser predicted that Trice would one day become the best tackle in the country, better even then than the Black All-American from the University of Iowa, Duke Slater. Aggressive on the field, Trice was submissive off of it. He knew the place of the Black man in white society, even north of the Mason-Dixon line. He was friendly but deferent. He spoke when spoken to and did not presume to enter his boss's office without an invitation. He cleaned his fellow students' muddy boots, sharpened their pencils, and assisted them in their bulky winter coats, always wearing a wide smile that pushed up his cheeks but did not expose his teeth that endeared him to others. Yet he remained unmistakably a black man in a white man's world. Every day was a reminder of his otherness. Every night he was sequestered 700 miles from his young wife. Classes, practice, work, repeat, alone, apart. But he did it day after day until summer washed up and he was able to return to the familiar, to Ohio, to his mother and Cora May. And then, come autumn, he returned to Ames, only this time with his wife. She moved into his third-floor room of the Masonic Building downtown, enrolled in Iowa State's Home Economics Department, and soothed his isolation. Indeed, college football was a dangerous game, often resulting in injury, sometimes in death. Not only was the equipment inadequate to the challenge of warding off blows, but defensive players used their hands and forearms as weapons to the head, neck, and face, a practice not specifically outlawed until the 30s. The game churned up so much carnage, 18 deaths, and 159 serious injuries nationwide in 1905 that President Theodore Roosevelt insisted football be made safer or abolished. The college heads responded with the forward pass, which spread out the field of play and modified the rules again after another 10 college football players were killed in 1909. Yet the game retained much of its raw brutality into the 20s. Minnesota was a good football team, not a powerhouse but regularly one of the top squads in the Midwest. In the 20 times the Cyclone had played the Gophers, Iowa State had won only twice, the last time a quarter century before. Trice felt enthusiasm from the send-off pep rally and the infectious optimism of his teammates last through the day's light practice at Northrop Field and into the early evening when he sat alone in his hotel room. He sensed the pressure of being a pioneer, posed to either confirm the notions against his race, they're lazy, they don't have the guts, they'll quit on you, or dispel them as so many lies. He wished he could run onto the field that moment and put into action all of his thoughts stirring him. But the game was still a night and a half day away, so he picked up his pen and wrote, to whom it may concern, My thoughts just before the first real college game of my life, the honor of my race, family, and self are at stake. Everyone is expecting me to do big things, and I will. My whole body and soul are to be thrown recklessly about the field tomorrow. Every time the ball is snapped, I will be trying to do more than my part. He then joined his teammates downstairs. Or perhaps he didn't because the hotel staff would not allow a colored man to eat in the dining room. It might offend the other guests. Hotel policy, you understand. So maybe he had to take his meal upstairs, or they may have initially said he couldn't eat in the dining room until his teammates protested and the staff relented. So Jack was able to dine with them. Accounts vary. Even though state law prohibited this sort of discrimination, it still occurred regularly in Minneapolis restaurants, hotels, YMCA, and public beaches. The spirit of prejudice Trice encountered in the hotel restaurant, at whatever level, could only rally his resolve to do big things for the honor of his race, family, and self. During his supper, he no doubt pondered how, grinding himself into the reminders of his personal sessions with Coach Hauser, because he picked up his pen again and wrote, On all my defensive plays, I must break through the opponent's line, the play in their territory. Be aware of mass interference. Fight low with your eyes open toward the play. Roll block the interference. Watch out for cross blocks and reverse in runs. Be on your toes every minute if you expect to make good. He scribbled in parentheses, meeting at 7.45, as though to explain why he stopped where he did, signed the letter simply Jack, and at some point folded the stationery and placed it in his coat pocket. Jack played relentlessly. Did the Gopher players target Trice because he was the only black player on the field? intending to injure him possibly even mortally? Or did they target him simply as a good player who threatened their chance at victory, perhaps wanting to knock him out of the game? Or was the injury an accident, one that might even have resulted from Trice's reckless play? Trice rode the train back to Ames in pain, settled on a straw mattress and endured the final 12 miles to campus on a jolting bus ride, probably gritting his teeth and moaning, each bump making his insides feel like they were being trampled all over again. He was immediately admitted to the Iowa State Campus Hospital, where three local doctors, including Dr. James Edwards of the Iowa State facility, looked after him. On Sunday, he seemed to be doing somewhat better. Cora Mae visited. Early Monday afternoon, one of Jack's friends, a fellow black student, left his bedside to find Cora Mae. As she later recalled in a letter, she rushed from the cafeteria to his room. Hello, darling, she said. He turned his gaze to her, but could not speak. And then his breath stopped. Cora May heard the bells of the camp tower, the campus bell tower, chime three times. It was three o'clock Monday, October the eighth, nineteen twenty-three, and her husband was dead. The climatic moment of the memorial service occurred when the president of the school read aloud the letter that Jack had written the night before the game. After his death, it had been found in his coat pocket. The honor of my race, family, and self are at stake, and I will be trying to do more than my part. Be on your toes every minute if you expect to make good. For all the praise, the question remained, was Jack Trice murdered? Friends, this story is so great that you have got to look it up and read it for yourself, because I have overran my time with this, and I could go on, but time is not permitting. Until next time, it has been my honor.